For the rest of you, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. I will be in, starting in chapter 37 this morning. Uh, man, it is a joy to come uh, to be uh, with my church family this morning. It's a joy to show up at, uh, and, and come for, for life group and see the church just full of uh, people uh, meeting in their life groups. And I, so I just want to commend you all for... for uh, just being a part of that, uh, you're, you're doing it. I mean, this is what we're called to do, is to be in relationship with one another, to pray for one another, to walk alongside each other, to bear one another's burdens. And so to see that and to see that thriving in our church, it just brings me uh, so much joy. And just want to kind of say that uh, whenever that kind of discipleship is happening and thriving, uh, we know we have uh, an enemy who doesn't want that to happen, and he's going to try to do what he can to mess it up. And oftentimes that just kind of looks like... Uh, that, uh, you know what, yeah, don't go this morning. You don't, you don't have to go this morning. And then that kind of snowballs and, eh, you, don't, you know, they won't really miss you. Eh, you've had a big week, you know. And uh, I know that because I feel those things sometimes. And so I know that's what the enemy wants to do. And so I just want to encourage you to continue on in that discipline. Make it a discipline. Make it a habit. Make it uh, just uh, every Sunday you're here. And, uh, and, and let's keep that going. But just want to just give you, just commend you and say, uh, good work, Rock Prairie. Also, before we jump into the sermon, I need to clear up a, a couple wrestling-related things from last week. So, uh, first of all, um, my dad wanted to make it clear, because I shared the story last week about uh, my dad's family going uh, to see professional wrestling on Christmas morning, and he wanted me to make it clear that that was not his idea, uh, and he, it was my, uh, his, his Aunt Ruth's idea, actually, um, and she was awesome, so, um, but uh, it was not his idea, and he just wanted to make that very clear, because I think several of you came up to him after the service and were like, so you took your family to wrestling on Christmas morning? He said, no, it wasn't me, it was my Aunt Ruth, who was awesome. But, uh, and then uh, secondly, it came to my attention, I didn't know this, there was a wrestler called Jake the Snake, right? Who knew that? This, did anyone know? Yeah, but you should have told me that as I was preaching. I, I uh, did not know that, so I apologize for that glaring oversight because that would have fit just in perfectly with what we were saying last week. Um, and if you have just no idea what I'm talking about because you missed last week, I guess you're just going to have to go back and watch it and all this will make sense. But right now we need to move on because we have a lot of ground to cover with the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph's, I don't know what I was thinking when I said that we were going to do Joseph in one week. Joseph's story takes up the last 14 chapters of Genesis, and I struggled to get through 14 verses many, many Sundays. And so we are going to, uh, Lord willing, with God's help, cover briefly uh, these uh, 14 chapters, and we're going to talk about the life of Joseph. And so we got to, I got to quit stalling here. We got to get into it. So hopefully you've turned to Genesis chapter 37. That's where we're going to start. Uh, I will pray for us, uh, and then we will, we will get rolling here. So bow your heads with me one more time. Heavenly Father God, we do praise you um, uh, for your goodness to us. And... Uh, we, we, just like we sang, we'll get to praise you forever and ever and ever. And um, so just tune our hearts to that right now, God. Um, tune our hearts to desiring to praise you, to desiring to give you worship. Lord, I say so often, uh, my heart agrees with the, the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. God, do that for us this morning. Just give us a hunger for you, God. We confess, oh, we hunger for so many things that are less than you, God. We hunger for so many things that do not satisfy, and you are the one who satisfies, and yet we often turn to you last or sadly not at all. And so forgive us for that, God, and just this morning, in this moment, give us a desire to hear from you in your word. Help me as I preach, God. Give me a humility, uh, guard my tongue, and Lord, we just, we just want to hear from you. We want your spirit to move. This, this all means it's just empty words, if not for your spirit taking these words through your word and applying them to our hearts. And we can't conjure that up, God. We can't manipulate that somehow, God. That has to be a work that you choose to do. So we just ask humbly that you would freely choose to bestow your spirit on us this morning in a special way. Even as we acknowledge we are, as believers, filled with the spirit. We just ask that this morning we would have a true sense that you are moving and working in this place, God. We need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, about a, a month or so ago, as I was, um, we were talking about heaven, one of the resources I recommended, one of the people I quoted was uh, Joni Erickson Tata, um, just uh, is a f- phenomenal voice of, about that topic specifically, but she, her story, I don't remember how much I shared of her story, and if I can't remember if what I said, you guys probably can't remember it either. So I want to share a little bit of her story um, this morning, that she was a teenage girl, 17 years old, like any other teenage girl, and uh, one day she went swimming uh, in the Chesapeake Bay and dove in and didn't realize how shallow the water was that she dove into, and she ended up uh, as a quadriplegic. She had a broken vertebrae that left her paralyzed from the shoulders down, just a complete freak accident. I mean, just imagine just one minute swimming with your friends, enjoying life. The next minute, your whole life is changed forever, seemingly randomly. I mean, can't imagine. And for several years, she struggled. She writes with anger and depression and suicidal thoughts. I mean, she didn't understand why God would allow something like that to happen to her. And uh, she didn't know why God would would let her suffer like this. And so she tells of, in that time, she writes about, thinks about that time of life, writes about that time of her life. She tells the story of a pastor who came into her life as a couple years after the accident, as she's really just in a dark place. And uh, this is what she says. I want to read what she writes here. She said, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was fresh out of the hospital, barely out of my teens, sitting at our family table with my friend, uh, the pastor, uh, with our Bible and sodas. She said, we had become acquainted when he heard I had tough questions about God and my broken neck. He also knew I wasn't asking with a clenched fist, but with a searching heart. So Steve, the pastor, made a bargain with me. I'd provide sodas and my mother's BLT sandwiches, and he would provide, as best as he could, answers from the Bible. And this is what she said to him. She said, I I always thought God was good, I said to him. But here I am, a quadriplegic, sitting in a wheelchair, feeling more like his enemy than his child. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. Didn't he want to stop my accident? Could he have? Was he even there? 
maybe the devil was there instead. Uh, and imagine being that pastor. Well, think about what would you say uh, to this young girl in her wheelchair? This is what the pastor said. That night, Steve leaned across the family table and said, God put you in that chair, Joni. I don't know why, but if you will trust him instead of fighting him, you will find out why. If not in this life, then in the next. He let you break your neck, and perhaps I'm here to help you discover at least a few reasons why. Steve paused and then summed it up with 10 words that would change my life. Here's the 10 words. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I want to say that again. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And uh, we see that certainly in Joni's life. Since that accident, she's gone on to start an international ministry, reading, reaching people all over the world with the good news of the love of Jesus. She's written 40 books at the beginning. Before the voice recognition technology was available, she would write with a pen in her mouth. Um, and uh, she's written over 40 books. She's delivered over 100,000 wheelchairs to paralyzed kids all over the world. And I heard her speak a few years ago at a conference, and I've just never seen anyone radiate the love of Jesus like that before. And uh, she's just one example of this, um, this, this principle that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And those 10 words sum up the life of Joseph better than anything else I can think of. Joseph spent a good chunk of his life in the pit both literally and figuratively. And for a good chunk of his life, it felt like he was just needlessly and senselessly suffering. Why did God let Joseph get sold into slavery by his brothers? Why did God direct him to Potiphar's house where he'd be uh, repeatedly sexually harassed until Potiphar's wife accused him of rape, which gets him thrown into jail? Why did God allow Joseph to interpret the cupbearer's dream in prison seemingly as key out only to have him forget Joseph, leaving him sit in that cell just for two more years? Why? Because God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That's the story of Joseph. And I believe that's why we have this story, this incredible, remarkable story. Because Joseph isn't the only one who spent time in the pit. And uh, to quote another uh, amazing teacher, this one in our church, Jeannie Watson, sometimes we fall into the pit, sometimes we're pushed into the pit, and sometimes we just take a running leap and jump right into the pit. And the question is, where is God in the pit? Why does God allow bad things to happen to his children. And the answer which we see through the incredible story of Joseph are those 10 words that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So the rest of our time this morning, we are going to take just an unreasonably quick drive through uh, the story of the life of Joseph and see how those words ring true for him, how those re words ring true for the life of Jesus, and how they ring true for us as well. So look with me, Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 1. 
says this, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So still, as we've been studying the family tree of the life of Jesus, and as we have been um, looking at this family, this family that for whatever reason God chose to make a promise with, that one day every nation on the earth would be blessed through this family, and yet over and over again we've just seen all sorts of incredible dysfunction uh, from one generation to the next to the next. And we see that dysfunction at play here. Jacob's polygamy has bred jealousy among all the different family members. And we see Jacob doing the same thing that his father did. You remember, Jacob's father played favorites between him and his brother. And now Jacob is doing the exact same thing, playing favorites uh, with Joseph. And he makes him uh, the uh, amazing Technicolor dream coat, right, for him to wear. And uh, Joseph brother, Joseph's brothers aren't happy with him. And honestly, you can understand why. This makes sense. If you have brothers, you can uh, certainly understand why they're not happy with him. First of all, Joseph goes and brings a bad report about the brothers. He tattles on the brothers. Uh, and then uh, he starts telling them about his dreams that he's been having. And... Uh, and these dreams just so happen to have everyone bowing down and worshiping him. So Joseph's like, hey guys, guess what? I had a dream where we're all tying up grain and all your bundles of grain just up and started bowing down to my bundle of grain. What do you think that means? I don't know. And then he says, I had another dream and the sun, moon, and stars all were bowing down to me. What do you guys think these dreams could mean? And uh, he's not... He's not portrayed as evil here, but he's certainly portrayed as extremely naive, right? He's wearing the coat as the favored son, and he's telling the stories of these dreams that he's had where everyone bows down to him. Um, he says, what do you think these dreams mean? Well, Joseph, these dreams mean that you probably should keep your mouth shut if you know what's good for you, um, but he doesn't do that, and so his brothers start plotting against him. Look at verse 18. They saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into the one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So they're gonna, they want to kill him. But Reuben comes to his rescue. Uh, Reuben, uh, for uh, details we can't get into, needs to... Um, needs to uh, make sure that he doesn't upset his father anymore. And so Reuben, uh, verse 21, when Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. 
intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. So the plan is to say, well, let's just throw, throw him in this pit and leave him there. And then later, when the brothers left, Reuben was going to go back and rescue Joseph. One problem. They go and they, so the, we get this interesting detail. The brothers throw him in the pit and then they go and sit down to eat. Meanwhile, some people come by and uh, they find Joseph and they, these people who found Joseph sold him into slavery to some other people that come by. And so the point is when the brothers go back to the pit, they look down there and uh, no Joseph. And so they start to realize what they've done. They start to realize that they're in big trouble, and the favored son is gone on their watch, and their dad is not going to be happy about this, and they're in big trouble. So they need to make this look like an accident. So, you know, it's a little very mobster. We've got to make this look like an accident, right? And uh, so they need to make it look like they're not the ones culpable for his death. So they come up with this plan. Look at verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood of the goat. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. We need to think about this story a little bit. And it just makes you wonder, um, does this remind you of anything that else that has happened in Genesis where a son is using uh, his brother's clothing to trick his father? You see that? It's, the cy- it's not like explicitly there, but it's, I mean, this is the cycle that's taking place. The deceiver has been deceived in the same way that he deceived his own father. And different reasons for the deception, but we're seeing these family dynamics continuing. Uh, this is what Jacob did to his dad, and now it's happening to him. And, and so in his mind, his son is dead. But the thing is, he's not dead. And this is where the story starts to get good, uh, because Joseph is very much still alive. And he's in Potiphar's house. And so even though Joseph is far from home, working as a slave, With every opportunity, I mean, think about it, every opportunity to to blame God and become bitter. His biggest crime was being naive and not recognizing uh, that uh, as the favored son, he really needs to uh, just kind of keep his mouth shut and lay low. He's a 17-year-old kid, and he's been sold into slavery. So he has every opportunity to become bitter, but we don't see that anywhere Instead, we see a portrait of a young man who's thriving at uh, what he's doing. So look at chapter 39 now, uh, starting in verse 3. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. Uh, So he's doing incredible work, Joseph is. He's working hard, and he's finding success, and now he has authority over everything in Potiphar's house. What's happening here? What's happening is, interestingly, Potiphar is unknowingly experiencing the blessing of the benefits of God, uh, of, of the covenant that God made with 
this family. You remember the things that God said to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. He keeps reiterating this promise. What does he say? I will bless those who bless you. And so as Potiphar continues to bless Joseph by giving him more and more authority in his household, he, God is staying true to his promise and he's experiencing the blessing of God. And this is all going really well for Joseph. And even though he's a slave, this is about as well as it could possibly be going. Uh, but there's, there's one problem, isn't there? What's the problem? Potiphar's wife, yes. Potiphar's wife has the hots for Joseph, big time. And this is a problem. Look at verse 7. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So she looks at Joseph, sees how handsome he is, and she wants to take him for herself. Now again, I'm asking you to kind of use your imagination here. When's another time in Genesis where somebody looks to something, sees that it's a delight to the eyes, and then wants to take it even though it's not something they should have? In the garden, right? What does Eve do? She sees that the fruit is good and she takes it. Now, in a strange twist, Joseph has become the fruit. I'm sorry, this is weird to say, but and Potiphar's wife sees that he is desirable to the eyes and she tries to take him, but he won't have any of it. One thing I learned as I studied for this sermon that, is that this sort of kind of sexual liaison between master and slave was actually pretty common. And so when you think about Joseph, we don't know how old he was at this point. He was 17 when he got thrown into the pit, and so he was probably around 18 years old or so. And all the hormones of a teenager that are raging, and uh, he would have had every opportunity to go through with this affair without any consequences. Day after day, she tries to get Joseph to sleep with her, and day after day, he rejects her. Why? Listen to what he says in verse 39. It says, he, talking about Potiphar, is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Okay, well, look at this. Again, another... So Potiphar has given Joseph everything except for what? One thing that he's tempted to have. And what does he say? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Do you see the garden story playing out in two ways now. It's, it's just like brilliant literature. We have Potiphar's wife who sees Joseph and is trying to do everything that she can to take him for herself. Meanwhile, we see Joseph who has been given everything in Potiphar's house except for one thing. And what does he say? How can I, uh, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he actually refuses to sin. I can't do this, he says, because it would be a sin against God. And it's just incredible because you think about how he might be feeling in this moment as he's away from home, sold into slavery, temptation right there in front of him. 
And I'm sure the question, just like the snake whispering into Eve, does God really want you to be happy? Is God really taking care of you? Is God really giving you everything you need? No, God's trying to withhold something from you. I mean, if God cared about you, you wouldn't be here in Egypt. You're a slave. God has forgotten you. Just take what you can for yourself. God doesn't want you to be happy, and he doesn't take the bait. Unlike Eve, he says, I refuse to sin against God. And this is such a good example for us, church, because it is so easy to justify sin when you're suffering, isn't it? Oh, man, it is so easy. This is one of the enemy's best tactics, I think. I deserve this. Look at all I've had to go through. I'm not sure God is even there, to be honest. I think I've earned this, at the very least, with everything else that's happened to me. It's a temptation that whispers in your ear. Don't fall for it, church. Look to Joseph as an example. He didn't say, oh, I don't want to get caught and get in trouble with Potiphar. He says, I will not sin against God. And here's where it gets crazy, church. How was Joseph rewarded for his obedience? Prison. Yes, Bennett, very good. He's thrown in jail. Some reward, huh? Some reward for obedience. Actually, yes. (laughs) This is what's crazy about God's sovereignty. This is what's incredible about how he is always working on a level that we just simply cannot see or understand. Because to our eyes, it looks like his obedience brought consequences that he could have avoided if he had given into temptation. You see what I'm saying? It looks like to us, if he would have just given in, he wouldn't have had these consequences. But that's not the whole story. If he had given into temptation, what would have happened? He would have been stuck in slavery, both literal slavery and spiritual slavery, right? He would have literally remained a slave in Potiphar's house when that wasn't God's plan for Joseph. And then at the same time, he would have been stuck in this like sexual slavery to Potiphar's wife that may have been enjoyable for a season, but was so far short of the plans that God had for him. So instead, his obedience brings what appear to be consequences in the short term, but actually set him free. And the lesson for us is this. Giving in to temptation, whether it's sexual temptation or any other temptation, might appear to not have consequences, but it always brings slavery. Fleeing from temptation, like Joseph literally did here as he flees, might appear to bring consequences sometimes, but it actually always brings freedom. So Joseph now is in prison, but he's actually freer than if he was continuing in bondage in this illicit relationship with Potiphar's wife. So he's in prison, and God hasn't forgotten him. Look at verse 20 of chapter 39. I love this. 
And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. Let's all say that together. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Skip down to verse 23, just at the end. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph, man, he can't help, but it's like you try to push him down, he just, it's like a pool noodle, right? You push him down, he just, just floats right back up. They try to put him into slavery, boom, he's the head of Potiphar's house. They try to put him in prison, and he's, the, the prison guard makes it, puts him in charge of all the other prisoners. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And this is where I wish we had like four weeks to talk about the life of Joseph rather than just one. You just got to read it, okay? You got to read the story this week. That's your homework. Joseph's in prison for several years. We don't know exactly how many, uh, but uh, many years, uh, maybe around 10 years or so. And then through God's providence, he's able to interpret the dreams of the chief cupbearer to the king and the chief baker to the king. And the cupbearer promised Joseph, that he would remember him when he got out, and then the text just tells us, and he forgot Joseph. And then just right later on, we read, and he was in prison for two more years. Can you imagine? Again, it's like, okay, like God's been with me this whole time. Here's my ticket out. I just got to interpret this dream for a guy who's got the ear of the king, Surely, he'll give me a good word. And he just simply forgot him. God's incredible plan involved Joseph sitting in prison for two years because the cupbearer just forgot to tell Pharaoh about Joseph. And again, it seems random. It seems cruel. Two years is not a short time. But then it changes. Pharaoh has a dream he dreams about these like fat, sabific cows and some skinny cows, and all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers Joseph, and Joseph's able to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and now things are starting to come full circle, because now we've seen Joseph rise to the top in Potiphar's house, we've seen him rise to the top in the prison, and now he rises to the top in e the kingdom of Egypt, and Pharaoh sets him over everything. And then when you think the story couldn't get any better, who shows up again in the end of the story? Joseph's brothers. And they don't recognize him. It's so good. It's like a travesty that we can't just sit here for the, the next half hour and talk about it, but uh, we don't have time to do it this morning. So please read it, okay? Promise me that you're going to read this story this week. It's so good. They don't recognize him, and then Joseph plants a stolen object on his youngest brother to see if his brother's hearts have changed, and then they realize that they have, and he reveals to them that it's him. And this is what he says. He says, God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Then he says this, therefore... It was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
was not you who sent me here, but God. Go back to that story from the beginning about the pastor who sat Joni down and told her that God was the one who put her in that wheelchair. And that takes some pastoral guts <laughs> to say something like that. But it's true. It has to be true, church. If it's not true, what are we left with? A God who's not in control. So it's either God allows bad things to happen or he's not strong enough to stop them. And this is hard. This is, I mean, this is like the problem of evil and why there's so much pain and difficulty and hardship in the world. This is one of the most difficult issues for Christians to wrestle with. But we're either left with a God who allows these things to happen or a God who isn't powerful enough to stop them or no God at all. So somehow we have to say, well, that first option is the only one that's acceptable to us. Somehow God allows these things to happen. And the, the question is why? And the answer, like we've said, is to accomplish what he loves. How do we know? Well, we see it at the cross. You think God wanted to see his son suffer. You think he enjoyed seeing him sweating tears of blood in the garden as he awaited his fate. You think God was pleased with the Roman soldiers beating his son with an inch of his life. You think he was happy when they put a crown of thorns on his head and spat on him and mocked him. You think he took pleasure in seeing his hands and his feet nailed to the cross. That God delighted in the life going out of his son with every labored breath. No, he hated it. So why did he allow it? To accomplish what he loves. To save his people from their sins. To bless the nations through the true, faithful Israelite. To reconcile his people to a holy God and to one another. To bring peace and justice and new creation. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, he allowed it for his own glory. That's why he did it. And somehow... This is where we just have to throw up our hands, church, because somehow through an absolutely incomprehensible and inconceivable blend of divine sovereignty and human will, God takes what was the worst situation imaginable, brought about by human will, and turned it into the most glorious event that has ever taken place. And we just say, praise you, God. And if God can do that at the cross, surely he can do the same thing in your life. You see that? He can reach into this combination of mistakes you've made and wrong things that people have done to you and horrible events that have happened that just seem random and cruel, and he can turn all of that into a masterpiece of glory and grace and beauty and life. That's what he wants to do. So what does that leave you with in the pit? Faith. Faith. When you're in the pit, when it feels like the hand of God himself has turned against you, it takes faith to believe that somebody who was born over 2,000 years ago and died and supposedly rose from the dead, that that is the answer. It's hard to believe sometimes. It takes 
faith. You don't have to believe it. You can choose to believe that life is random. There's no greater purpose than what you make of it. You can choose to believe maybe that there's some sort of kind of higher power who's somewhat, you know, directing events. Maybe he, he rewards good people with good things and gives bad things to bad people and karma and all that. You can choose to believe that too. Or you can choose to believe the unbelievable that there's a God who permits human injustice and suffering and evil sometimes because out of those things he is able to accomplish what he loves and bring justice and healing and salvation. God permitted Joseph to go to the pit in order to accomplish something extraordinary. He permitted Jesus to go to the cross in order to accomplish our salvation. And sometimes he permits you to go to the pit too. So consider it pure joy, my brother, my sister, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is not wasting your trial. I promise you that. No matter what you're going through, one day, whether it's in this life or the next, you'll be able to say, just like Joseph said to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And the reason you'll be able to do that is not some sort of feel good, God just likes to make everything better. It's because Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father, went to the cross, endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Right now, do you believe it? It's good news. He's not wasting your trial. God sometimes permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Praise God for that. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you. Some, some weeks, some Sundays, Lord, as we look to your word, it feels like we're just butting up against like, the limit of our feeble understanding. We don't understand it, God. It was your will to send your son. And it was his will to accomplish your will. And yet it took a horrific event to satisfy your wrath against our sin. It took the pure and spotless lamb willing to die so that we might be saved. So we praise you for that, God. We thank you for the cross. And because of the cross, we can know, God, that you're not wasting our trials either. So, Lord, I just pray, pray for anyone this morning who is in the pit right now, God. May they know and believe as hard as it is to believe sometimes. Sometimes, God, we just have a, just hanging on by a thread of belief. Just ask that you would keep and protect them. And may they know your loving arms are safe and they are secure in you, even though the world sometimes doesn't appear that way and their world doesn't seem that way right now, God. Yeah, sometimes things happen to us that you hate to see. And that's hard, God. 
but we trust and we believe that you are using those things to accomplish what we, you love in us. We know that because you did that with Jesus. Praise you, God. We praise Jesus. We thank you. As we sing, oh, come, let us adore him. I pray that our lives adore the Son. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.